Well, good morning, Victory City family. So grateful to be able to join back together this week in the Word of God. We are trekking now all the way through the book of Acts, and I'm so excited to have nestled where we are in Acts chapter 13. No. As we have been working, we have looked even last week at the characteristics of what the real church, the legitimate valid church looks like. And if I'm being honest, it was a bit of a precursor last week for what was happening this week as we're going to dive even more deeply into what makes the church real, but also being able to carefully identify what is false, the false narrative of the gospel that is out there for so many people who are being taken hold by that gospel. Now, it was a foreshadowing last week for what was happening this Sunday, but it is also more of a reoccurring thing that we're going to see constantly as we walk through Acts, but also beyond just the establishment of the New Testament church, this false truth, this persecution, this assault that is against the real church of God is constant and is never ending. And Satan certainly never relents in his attempt to invalidate everything that is true and everything that is right about the gospel. His goal, ultimately, people, is to effectively destroy the church. Now, that is certainly a great danger. It is a great danger that the church itself is under attack. But what is even worse than that the church is under attack is that the church is under attack and many of the members who are part of the church don't even realize it. God has made it clear that the church will survive. The Bible says that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church that is built upon the rock and foundation of Jesus Christ. But the only way that the gates of hell will not prevail is that we who make up the church, the body of believers, will stand firm against and actively resist everything that is a false gospel that tries to permeate into the church of God. So my hope today is that we can learn from the examples that have been set before us by the faithful men of God who proclaimed the truth of God and called out everything that was false, everything that was counterfeit. So we're going to look today and our title for today's sermon is Standing Firm. We're going to look today at Acts chapter 13, verse 6. It says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, magician for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So, 
Before we begin, I need to give you just some details that are going to give you some context about what's happening here. So it says here that they have gone through and they come to an island. The island is named Paphos, and you don't know this, but Paphos is the capital city of a, a place called Cyprus. And it was here that they had the center of all the worship of Aphrodite and Venus. This is what we would call a culturally and ethnically diverse city that is dominated by those cultures and the practices of those people. Now, when we think of this city, it is more akin to think of what we think of like L.A. or what we think of New York City. As we mentioned last week that they were sent by the spirit, we see exactly where the spirit has decided to send them. He sends them to this contentious area of culture. Because of their contradiction to Christian truth, the harvest here was perhaps more ripe than it would have been anywhere else. As a part of the evangelical effort, they were led to go where the most people needed the gospel. But this also means that they were going into an environment where people are also going to vehemently oppose the gospel as well. Not only is this a city that is filled with culture diversity, but it is also the political hub of sorts because it was also a senatorial province with a proconsul that serves and reports directly back to Rome. And he basically serves as the governor of this area, that being Sergius Paulus here. So there are qualities, obviously, that have drawn them here on this missionary journey. There's a reason why God, the spirit, he has sent them to go here. And there are some qualities that I want you to see Four of them that maybe you can identify even with our own world today. They were sent here because. Cyprus Paphos would have been a hotbed for idol worship. The center of Venus and Aphrodite temple was there. So they were worshiping false gods. It was ethnically diverse and progressive in thinking. So we know that the more diverse these places would get, the more progressive they got in their thought, the less they believed they needed a god. It is politically dominated, so it is not run by any absolute truth, but by the political schemas of the day that are organizing everything that's happening in the city, and they are truth resistant. And we're going to see that as we dig a little bit more deeply in the sermon today. See, what I hope that you are able to see in those four characteristics is that we tend to think one of two ways, right? And either way we think on the subject both of them make us pretty useless. We tend to think that the culture back then was much worse and much more dangerous than it is today, than it is in the world that we live in. And we tend to think either it was much worse back then or that what we see now is much worse than what it was back then. So either way, we think it was terrible back then and there's no way things can be that bad or is bad right now. There's no way things have ever been as bad as they were. But let me explain why having those two thoughts, though they are dichotomous to one another, actually makes us pretty useless on both sides. Now, if you're the Christian who believes, man, things were so much worse, so much more oppressive back then, so much more dangerous and persecution was much more real back then than it is now, it actually makes you a little complacent. Let me explain why. 
Because when you start thinking, man, things were so much worse then, I don't want to rock the boat right now because things are not that bad and I don't want to be the catalyst for them getting worse. So I'm not going to disrupt the good job I have. I'm not going to disrupt the income that I'm making. I'm going to be quiet about my faith because far be it for me to ever make things be as bad as they were back then. So having this thought actually makes you risk averse. You're not going to do anything to stand firm in the faith because you think, I see what persecution looked like and it was so bad back then, I would not want to invite that into my life now. And it actually renders a person pretty useless because if there is some oppressive legislation that is passed that is anti-Christian, you are more apt to be quiet about it because you don't want to rock the boat. Because we've seen what happens when people rock the boat in the Bible. They get their heads cut off, they get thrown into prison, they get exiled. And we can't have any of that now, can we? So, on one side, we think things are far worse than in back then than they are now. But then the flip side is that we think things are far worse now than they were back then. And the problem with that is it makes you this weird, radical extremist where you feel the need to attack every little issue in the name of your belief system because you think things are as bad as they have ever been. They've never been worse. Persecution is worse. Oppression is worse. Everything is terrible now. But see, again, you lack perspective and it makes you pretty useless as well. Let me explain why. There's this church, perhaps you've heard of it, that is infamous, Westboro Baptist Church. And they are infamous for showing up at events, no matter what the events may be. Certainly many of them are God-dishonoring events. And they show up, but not to evangelize or to witness or to draw people in through love and kindness and through the firmness of the truth. They actually go to aggressively abuse people in the world. And so what happens is because they're so radical, people don't actually ever believe what they say or take the time to listen. And if you are a Christian, it is so radical and gun-ho about your beliefs to the point that people won't even give you the time of day. Let me tell you something. You are useless. So having these two trains of thought, Makes us pretty useless. I'm not going to rock the boat because things were terrible back then and God forbid they'd be terrible now. And I'm only going to rock the boat because things are much worse now. Not so much that I could actually be effective in evangelizing witness, but just so I can take a stance and everybody can know that I take that stance. Useless. Let me be clear. The onslaught of Satan is as constant, it is as consistent as it has always been. It is an onslaught against everything that glorifies God. Jesus said for us that this would happen when the last days came. And just in case you don't know this, we have been in the last days since the ascension of Jesus. So since Jesus has ascended, we have seen the attack of Satan. And it isn't any worse than it was back then. Sure, the Bible speaks about evil men waxing worse and worse. But that is as we get closer to the end. But the reality is that Satan has not relented one bit in his attack of the church. So this impression and oppression from the world must be met with truth. So let's look at the responses to adversity by Paul and the others. We are introduced here to two major players. We have Elemis, that is also Bar-Jesus, the magician, 
And then we have Sergius, who was the proconsul whom I mentioned earlier. What's happening here? Out of obedience to the spirit, Barnabas and Paul have gone to one of the most contradictory cities in the area. Listen, I want to be clear. They are not avoiding the difficult places, but they are going straight to them with the gospel. They are going right into the cities that would be more the most averse to the gospel, and they're going right to them with the truth. As they are going, Bar Jesus, which actually means son of Jesus, the irony, right, was with Sergius the proconsul. Now, I want to give you a little side note just because I love how valid everything we read in the Bible is. For years, people thought that Luke, historians believe that Luke, the historian, had actually gotten this account wrong because they could not find any record that there was a proconsul in Paphos in Cyprus. But archaeological evidence actually revealed years later that there was a proconsul by the name of Sergius Paulus who was, in fact, the proconsul in Cyprus. And Paphos. So again, there's the Bible is validating itself. Side note, I know. Anyways, it says that Sergius is a man of great intellect and he is persuaded almost by hearing what he has heard that the gospel is being said by Paul and Barnabas, so much so that he calls them over after hearing some of what they've been teaching. Now, Elemis or Bar Jesus doesn't take too kindly to them stepping in on his territory. Why? We should remember Simon the magician back in, I think, Acts chapter 8, he has all this financial prosperity, he has all this fame, all this notoriety because these places are dominated by their belief in the spirits, they're dominated by their desires to be able to fortune tell, to see all types of things happen. And so these people, these magicians could become rich and famous and well known, so much so that we see that Elemis the magician here has an audience with Sergius Paulus who would have been a prominent man obviously in the city. And so he sees this as an attempt for them to usurp the authority that he has in the area. Now, Elemis is revered enough to be in the, console, in, the, in the company of the proconsul. And so he viewed this as his territory. And obviously, he had gotten in good enough with Sergius as well. I do want you to notice a few qualities, though, about him and I want you to think about some of the things that we see today and compare these qualities with much of what is popular even today. These are some of the characteristics that we know about Bar-Jesus or Elemis the Magician here. First of all, he is a false prophet. There's no question about that. He was an influencer. People were motivated by the things that he did. They loved to see him. He was well connected. He was in good with some of the most powerful people, which makes him look even more valid in who he is. Now, why are these three uh, qualities significant? Because false teachers often come in a similar mold. They are not those who are hated by the world. They are not those who are despised. In fact, they are those who are loved and revered and admired by them. One great mark of a man who is probably a false teacher is that people who will not surrender their lives to God will heavily quote that man. 
He is seen as wise, right? Elymas was all of that as well. So as Paul is sharing with Sergius, he is actively opposing the gospel and the salvation of Sergius. There are eternal consequences here. And Paul, though pastoral in heart, normally full of grace, patience and love, seemingly shows none here. In fact, there is a stern rebuke. He calls Elymas a son of the devil. Now, we live in this very politically correct, we don't address, we show love and forgiveness society, right? But Paul must not have gotten that memo. Neither did Jesus, by the way. If you remember, the Pharisees who said, we are the children of Abraham, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Jesus says, no, you're actually not serving your father, Abraham, but you are serving your father, Satan. So even Jesus addresses the counterfeits by telling them exactly who they are. Now, when you take this approach, the, the approach they have, which is that they're bold enough to call false teachers out. They're bold enough to call the counterfeits out. They are not reluctant. When you take this approach in life, I'm just telling you now, people will call you harsh. They will call you judgmental. And they will call you unloving. But in that case, you're only thinking about the offender. If you tell me I'm unloving, uncaring, if you tell me I'm judgmental, if you tell me that I'm harsh, then you're only thinking about the person who is committing the offense. But what about the person that's being misled? What about their soul? What, what about the confusion created because they are being fed this teaching and we aren't bold enough to withstand their lives? This gospel, our gospel, is under attack. But it is under attack most effectively from our pulpits. That is where the gospel is being most attacked. And too many of us are tap dancing around these liars. Look at what 2 John 1 and 7 says. A lot of people have an issue with me. Uh, when I quote this scripture, but the issue should be with the scripture, not with me, because I'm just telling you what's already there. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but many with a full reward, but may with a full win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, hear this. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John issues here a strict instruction and a rebuke to us regarding false teachers. He says that if we even greet them, then we are showing ourselves to be participants in their sin. No. You can't share their sermons. 
You don't need to post it anywhere. You need to copy and paste. You don't need to give a link. You can't go to their conferences. You can't post pictures with them. Nothing. Why? Because if you are a source of truth and you stand with the source of lies, a person who is a false teacher, you immediately give them validation to people who wonder whether or not their word is legitimate. And the last thing we ever want to do is legitimize what God has said is illegitimate. We have to stand firm. Why is this so significant? Because this is the manner by which the church, our church, is being attacked. It is a covert operation, people. It is a Trojan horse where the counterfeits have slipped in. They are making this an inside job and they are picking off the Christian faith one by one. Jesus said that, you know, in the last days that there are many deceivers who are going to come and they're going to draw many astray. And if they could, they can't. They would fool even the elect. That is what Jesus said. It is important to see what happens here. Paul actively and directly withstands the false teacher publicly. He pronounces a strict consequence. Blindness. Oh, how the Lord knew not to give me the ability to pronounce this same consequence on people because there would be many a preacher blind in Birmingham right now and probably all over the world. Now, why would Paul be so reactionary? Why would the man who we would think normally be full of love, patience and grace? Why would he be so reactionary regarding this man? Let me tell you why. Because he'd seen the resurrected Lord this man was disputing. He had seen Jesus Christ with a resurrected body. He had seen him with the nail prints in his hands and his feet and the wound in his side. He had seen the risen Lord. And the last thing that he was going to be willing to do is let any counterfeit come in and reject and assault what he knew was true. People, I think the biggest issue with why we won't stand firm for the truth against the lies is because we don't even believe the truth ourselves. We don't even believe that Jesus' resurrection means anything for our own life. So if anybody brings us this other false gospel that tickles our ears and other people, we will readily accept it, then accept the truth because we don't know that the truth really is the truth. See, when you know for a fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sinfulness and your own wickedness, you will not stand for anybody to call themselves legitimate knowing that they are trashing the word of God, you won't stand for it. And yeah, you may think that I'm a radical and I'm overly passionate, but that's because I know for a fact what Jesus Christ has done for me. And the last thing I'm willing to see is anybody cheapen that for a few likes, for a few shares. For a few dollars. Because salvation is greater than anything that this fleeting world has to offer. I think it boils down to this. The reason we don't take this as seriously 
as we should is because we don't perceive what is actually at stake here. People are taking the gospel, which was meant to propel people from eternal damnation, and they are cheapening that gospel for their own gain. And if that doesn't infuriate you, then something's wrong with you. Maybe you don't understand the gospel either. Look at how this man is one of Christ. He sees that a man is blinded before him, but even that isn't what astonished him. It was the teaching of Paul that astonished him, that drew him into the faith. Paul isn't bogged down here with rants and arguments. He just teaches this man the gospel. The truth of the gospel is the best defense that we have against any lie that's told. So what can you do to stand for the truth against the lies? There are three things that you can do that are going to close us out today. The first thing that you need to do, you must know the truth. You must know the truth. You won't know a lie is a lie if you don't know the truth is the truth. This recently I shared a post about this well-known preacher who has said something that was um, very, very heretical. And when I shared it, somebody said, um, I don't understand what, what's heretical here. I said, oh, well, he's teaching something called modalism that is against the Trinity. And they said, hold on, let me go Google that. They came back and said, you're exactly right. He is teaching that. I was like, yeah, I know. She was like, why don't most people know this? I said, because most people don't know enough about their faith to know when somebody is assaulting the faith. That is the big issue that is attacking us today, is that when the truth is being assaulted, we don't even know enough about it to know that it's been assaulted. Number two, share the truth. Other people won't know it if you don't share it. If the gospel is hid, it is hidden to those who are lost. Number three, defend the truth. This is where most of us fall short. We will always look good, maybe even feel good, if we turn a blind eye to what we see is a lie against the gospel. And I get it. So many of us are afraid of the jeers and the sneers and the blocks and uh, perhaps the persecution, the mockery that comes. But you have to think it is more important that I am accepted eternally by Jesus Christ than temporally, temporally by these men can't put me in heaven or hell if they wanted to. We have been called to stand firm in the truth. And if you really believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you won't stand for anybody's assault on that truth. It's just that simple. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you that you have given us the means by which we have to stand up for the truth, God. There are so many lies. There are so many things that are assaulting what we know is true about you, God. Lord, it takes courage. It takes boldness. It takes knowledge. It takes faith for us to stand out against every lie, every attack, every assault that is coming from Satan, God. 
But if we don't stand firm, if the righteous God be scarcely saved, where does the sinner appear? Lord, you have given us all we need. You have strengthened us. You have given us the power of the Holy Spirit, God. You have given us the work of Jesus Christ, orchestrated by you, God the Father. Lord, that is the great testimony that we must tell. And God, please open up our eyes, open up our ears to everything that's a lie, everything that's false, so that we can know what is true, so that we can share what is true, so we can defend what is true. That is what we must do. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I thank you so much for joining in this week. Stand firm. Stand firm. There are so many things that are out there that are going to try to assault the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you must stand firm.